everybody, you're very welcome to another episode of Redefining Cybersecurity here live, kind of live from InfoSecurity Europe in London. Uh, we're here on the show floor just outside of the keynote stage uh, where we get to chat with all kinds of folks and we didn't get a chance to talk to Rob Black before the events. We caught him here in person. He's with me now. Rob, thanks for joining Oh, delighted to be here. It's a, buzz, a great day and I'm looking forward to our conversation. All right, it's uh, good energy here. Definitely is. It's it uh, is. nice to see everyone back and buzzing again. <laughs> it's been too long. It has been too long. It has been too long. So you, um, well, before we get into it, so, I mean, I'm intrigued by anybody who's in university and doing research because you, you get some good perspectives that aren't always connected to some things that either push you too far or hold you back on something. So, Tell us a little bit about what you work on, what you're doing. Uh, uh, well, I guess um, I've got several hats on, so I'll share the different uh, yeah, hats yeah. I wear. So I'm a lecturer of information activities at the uh, Defence Academy in the UK, uh, where um, I work uh, with military personnel, um, encouraging them to think about how we integrate cyber operations into military operations or vice versa. I think at first it started thinking about integrating cyber in and now it's probably a case of weaving military back into cyber. And we look at the challenges of how does it fit as a tool of statecraft? Um, does it fit closer to intelligence operations, more like covert action or actual warfare? Um, I used to be involved in the National Cyber Deception Laboratory and former deputy director there where we looked at researching and exploring the application of deception in proactive cyber defense. So how do we engage our adversaries in our networks? How do we get them to double guess everything? How do we get them to question their steps, question our defenses, and make them actually less successful in their activities? Which was great fun. Bringing in that warfighting mindset in the information age, which you, know, you don't have the physical di dimension. You can't go and punch the attacker on the nose. Right. You haven't, you've got very limited physical recourse to your attacker, but you can engage their mind, their decision making, and too often we are, we forget that when we think about our threat actors, it's capability and intent. So they're making decisions all the time, but we engage them thinking about their technical capabilities, not realizing that there's a series of decisions they have to make. So that, that was fascinating research. And then alongside that, I uh, run a university student competition in cyber policy, uh, UK Cyber 912 Strategy Challenge, which is great fun. Thinking about bringing through the next generation of cybersecurity leaders, we've got a much more holistic approach to strategy and planning. So not just thinking about the technical aspects of the incident, but thinking about the so what's and the implications for the business, the organization, the government that might be being affected. And it's great to see this pipeline of young talent coming into the industry. We're really gonna make waves and hopefully lead us to a much more secure future. Yeah. So, and then the last job I have, the last one I have is working with the British Foreign Office, organizing um, policy-based discussions and dialogues on topics of interest in cyber intelligence and warfare as well. So I keep myself busy in that way. So. <laughs> see, so and it, it sounds like the role of a CISO where they're, they're wearing many hats. Yeah. Right? Uh, you, have, you have the policy, you have the operations, you have the, the team you're trying to build and, and keep skilled. And, and so just a lot of stuff going on. Absolutely. I know um, we can talk about any of those roles if you want, but I know here at the conference you're specifically looking at the legal aspect sure. of cyber. And I think you're on a panel later today and I think you're bringing an interesting point you mentioned. I, I on think so. I, th I think we're too. Um, well, I think we really need to think about what we mean by legality in cyberspace, and right. not just in terms of which jurisdiction does it fall under and how do we process certain things. But when we think about cyber crimes, are we bringing conventional, traditional perspectives on crimes to the fight? So most people will either look at criminal law or the legalities of cyber 
crime based on the Computer Misuse Act in the UK um, and uh, or in data protection, data privacy. And, and actually, whilst I can see why they're being applied, there's something distinctly missing in our understanding of of informational harm and informational damage. So how do we go about categorizing the hurt that has been caused? If I wipe your hard drive, have I physically damaged it? Well, I haven't physically damaged it, it can still be used, so I haven't stolen it either. But that data's gone, it's not been there, and I can't function, I can't perform whatever duties I have. So how do we bring in that concept of harm and hurt in this informational virtual age? And I think it really does need us, and it, I guess it really, really does need us to consider what tools we can bring to this discussion. Um, because it applies everywhere, it applies at the organisation level, but it also applies at the state level. So when you come to the public international law and you look at cyberspace and the applications of laws in cyberspace there, you're, you're going down two distinct paths. You're going down the um, intelligence gathering path, or you're going down the war fighting path, which is the kinetic equivalent. So, did not patch your amount to an act of war. The discussion about how much damage was done, how many how many terabytes of information needed to be destroyed before not patch became an act of war. The insurance industry are having challenges thinking about exactly that in terms of coverage. But actually, it's pulling old, conventional, tired legal regimes into this modern digital age. And I don't think it's fit for purpose. Right. Can, you, can you talk to me a bit about, as, as, you're, as you're describing that to me, you mentioned insurance. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's a, a completely different part of this equation as well. Yeah. Because there's, there's a legal arm, you have. Uh, the harmed entity or individual, you have perhaps somebody who's suing, or yeah, I guess that person suing whomever, right? Yeah. Or looking for justice in that regard. You have the insurance who has to pay out on it. You have the, the the policy folks who presumably kind of set the stage for that in, in most regards. Um, how do we? Are, are there any strange things about that connection where we're? I feel like maybe we're fighting or not working toward the same thing. Well, so I think, interestingly, I, I was struck a few years ago. Um, I was listening to a presentation by uh, one of the lead individuals at Beasley Insurance. And it struck me that uh, actually the insurance industry have to be ahead of the curve. So they have to be able to work out the premium and the cost involved if, you, if we take a, um, an insurance policy out. So they have to be anticipating those future threats. They have to be anticipating those costs and multiples. So they have to be really at that cutting edge and beyond and anticipating where the environment's going to move to, where the threat actors going to move to. Um, but I also think they have a massive contribution in not necessarily the regulatory space, but in shaping how the industry and the organizations that are utilizing cybersecurity will act. So you know, if you think about it in traditional sense, you'll get a reduction in your premium in your, for your car insurance if you have installed extra safety features. Right. Yeah, so if you've installed the latest theft detection kit, then you'll get a reduction. That will come into the due diligence insurance companies will be doing on their on their potential customers. And I think we're seeing that already where you know, the insurance companies are expecting you to utilize their uh, forensic investigations teams or their incident response teams and they're acquiring these capabilities so they can give you the whole package because they want to have confidence in the product that you're then using because that then affects the premiums that they'll be charging you. And I think we'll see, particularly with the use of deception technology, I think we'll see a rising tide of insurance companies leading an expectation on individual organizations to put in levers of layers of protection, layers of defense in order to bring that premium down or, that, or they won't insure them. You know, it's sort of, you have to meet this minimum threshold, otherwise we won't insure you. Right. And I think that's going to really shape the market a lot more. And we're beginning to see incidents of that in, in, uh, in the US with, I think, the US DOD are looking at um, 
enhancing some of the NIST regulations so that if you're going to be a supplier to the DOD, you have to have a certain degree of uh, deception technology layered into your defense networks and other defensive measures in so that you become a much more harder target that then can work with the DOD with a level of confidence that you're not going to get compromised and have a supply chain attack or whatever it might be. And I think that is going to be the mindset we're moving to. I think really interestingly, if you think about that model, we then have to think about how do we take on a more aggressive defensive posture um, and that brings in my argument the, the role of deception again deception right. technologies not just how we currently use them for threat intelligence and threat gathering but in fighting back and fighting our attackers and that doesn't mean the um, kind of the red line the of going hack back, back but it means how do we make our network much more robust how do we confuse our attackers how do we make them doubt the value of the material that they're going to steal and that, I think, is where there's a real opportunity for some really exciting research, some really exciting capability development, and some really exciting thinking. But if you're in that space, this is where it comes back to the legalities, there is no real legal terrain here because you've right. got the Computer Misuse Act in the UK, so you can't do anything to a computer, which is already hampering a lot of vulnerability researchers because they could be breaking the law, just doing the very research to make the system secure. It's age-old yeah. legislation, which you know was never written with the awareness of the internet age as it is today but it's being fighting with our hands behind our back. And then we've got the computer misuse, data protection issues and so on, which are absolutely relevant and pertinent issues, but don't necessarily help us think about how do we protect our data. If you think of the organizations, um, I won't name any particular organizations that have been compromised recently, but think about it. They're in a situation where I think there's a real fundamental question over what support they should be getting from government. Because if they get hacked, they might lose their data. They might get a tipper or advice from National Cyber Security Centre, for example, to say there's something coming, watch out, there's a bad hostile state actor who might be coming after your networks, or more likely, you'll get compromised, you'll have your data stolen, and you'll be asked to share the tippers of that attack with an information sharing community, so all of your collective colleagues or your competitors will be aware of the TTPs of the attackers so they can protect themselves and don't get compromised, so you're suffering there. And then, to make things worse, because of the data protection legislation, which again is written in the right way with the right spirit, but the application of it means that if you are compromised by a hostile state threat actor, you can end up being penalised by a large fine when you're already fighting the fight. It doesn't seem that we've really brought the mindset that we need to in this fight. We're seeing it in a very regulatory, passive mindset of assurance, regulation and building back, rather than the fact that we are going to war every day to protect our networks. And we need to see it like that. Yeah, and for, for me, I mean, when, when, we, when I think of legal aspects here, I think of liability. And I know uh, there's a gentleman in, in the States, uh, Jeremiah Grossman, sure. who has been talking for years now about software warranties, yep. where almost every other product in the world has a warranty that it will do what it says it's supposed to do, sure. and not in cybersecurity. Oh, yeah. And so they're not... The vendors are not liable. Companies are spending millions and millions of dollars trying to raise the security posture. Never get to 100%. They're the ones that lose out. They won't. And where it gets interesting, in my perspective, is if it is a, an act of war, or nation states, or something that the insurance companies have drawn a line and says we can't afford to insure these types of activities. Therefore, your policy won't won't be paid out, yep. um, the, the companies are being left to hold the bag here after spending gazillions of dollars. And, and assuming that you're being covered as well. Right. And, and I, think the, um, I think it gets a little bit more complicated than that. I understand the, 
the Lloyds of London um, Act of War um, note that came out a couple of years ago, but I think it creates a worrying situation where you can have exactly the same siren scent affect you, and in one context, it's covered legally and with your insurance, and in the other context, it isn't covered because it's deemed to be an act of war because there's some other political incident happening at the same time. Let's take Not Petcher. If Not Petcher had happened this year, it would have been integrated into the military campaign, Russian activities, and it would have been swept under that carpet of an act of war. Yeah. Happened a few years ago, absolutely the same incident, same disruption to Maersk, but not part of a, a larger military campaign. Then it comes into a definition at what point does it become a military campaign. If you ask the Ukrainians, the Russians have been interfering in Ukraine for a lot longer than the recent intervention, physical intervention back in February 22. So you get this very slippery grey area of where it's defined as an act of war here and therefore we're, we're exempt and actually it's not an act of war here but it's the same incident and we're covered. That feels a very murky territory to be treading in. If I was a CISO or a board, I would be questioning how fair that is to be honest. Yeah, so. yeah absolutely. Yeah, it doesn't seem fair to me. And what I'm afraid of, and especially, I mean, we talk big international, multinational companies, presumably they make a lot of money and can invest a lot of that money in, in security solutions. But as you move down the stack to some of the smaller SME type companies, I, I'm afraid that we're putting too much onus on them to buy all the technologies and have the teams in place to manage them or perhaps even outsource some of them, but it's an expense. Um, in addition to the checklist uh, and yeah, I policy think, thing, and right? I think even more, if you go next stage further as yeah. well, we're encouraging cybersecurity behaviors in the general population. But I can't tell you how many times my data has been compromised by supply chain attacks over here, over right. there, with this organization over here. So why do I bother? I, and I mean this generally, here's, here's a cybersecurity professional who has concerns about where my data is. I can't even find out where my data is. I can't even tell you how many times it's been compromised over the last few years. Um, so what difference does it make if I don't if I don't protect my data as, as robust as possible? Because it's going to get stolen or it probably already has been stolen. And I think we're going to get to that apathy very quickly. And I think we're going to lose the general population, even if we haven't necessarily got them at the moment. And then you've got organizations, again, balancing cyber security protections against you know, insurance for this, health and safety measures for this, post-pandemic preparations. What point with, do you with innovation yeah, right, and, and the option to grow <laughs> and, and and i think actually realizing at that point that uh, you know we have to empower and encourage and support i think it really does come clear at that instance because we, it's gonna wane away and and the fear of compromise probably isn't enough because actually you don't know where that compromise is going to come from you don't know if it's a spear fishing over there or a, an activity on somewhere else in the network and you're going to find yourself just chasing your tail I'm thinking this is too difficult. So we, I think we really need to change the, the, the approach that we're taking to really highlight what we need to prioritize first and ensure that, that level of security that we need. So where, where is the legal space gonna go then, do you think? Um, because I mean, we, we've seen a case where a CISO was tried, right? Sure. Uh, I, 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 I don't know if that's the right I, I, yeah, I, I, I think it'd be interesting to see if that has any impact on CISO decision making about becoming CISOs because right. you know that liability is a real concern there, as you say. Um, I guess my my feeling is that as much as I might talk about, we need to think about a new approach to informational harm, informational damage. That is a significant mindset shift from the current status. Um, 
I could only see something like that happening if at the geopolitical level there was an incident that made us revisit um, our considerations around kinetic equivalence. So, um, and that I think would come about with an activity against a, uh, a NATO nation where the rest of NATO decide that it doesn't amount to Article 5 support and then we're going to have a, a real stretching of the alliance. To be honest, that's where I thought Russia was going to push us with Ukraine and I know Ukraine isn't necessarily part of the NATO and Article 5 but if, if Russia or you know, with the Baltics or anywhere else was able to create such tension between the um, coalition partners, it could really bring down the alliance and that would be a real significant shift. Um, so I think at that level we might see some grand strategic impact and change to how we approach these things. But until then, we're going to stick to the, the kind of tried and tested kinetic equivalents, how much damage, how much harm and how much data has been lost and we go down the intelligence route. And um, so that doesn't fill me with much hope, I guess. Right. Um, and then I think when we, at that point, it then flips into the kind of the private security world, privacy security world of making sure we've regulated as much and ensured the protection of us and yeah, falling under GDPR. So I think all of us recognise the the progressiveness with which the GDPR was in the EU back, back when it was introduced, um, but actually recognising that whilst it was progressive, it also has really shaped um, the user's experience as well. You know, you look at the, uh, every time you go on the website now, you get the accept cookies, like, how many people actually care that and just rapidly click through and push it? So yeah, is that the behaviour that we want as a result of this legislation? Yes, how we're protecting it when being much more considerate at an organisational level, but are we moving forward the stakes with regards to how do we protect ourselves best? I think that's the questions we've really got to start reflecting on. Yeah, and I think I think you make a great point. For me, I, I well, I'll use the word culture. Yeah. And I, I think it's not just a company culture. It's not just an one society culture. It's an international culture, and I I, I don't know. I feel that the entities that are responsible are not being held liable. And I, and I think we're, we're kind of just pushing the rocks around and, and it's landing on different different folks here and, and there. And I think that culture thing is, is absolutely critical and I think it also spreads across the industry. You know, we, you know, I think if you look at the issues of burnout in the industry, particularly at the front line, the soft operation centers, the security operation centers, the SOCs, you know, the threat hunters, the analysts working on their front line, they're burning out burning out because most of the job opportunities are focused on how much I'm going to earn to do the same job I'm doing. And actually, if we instill a warrior mindset in them, train them up as cyber Jedi, cyber warriors, get them excited and passionate about the work they're doing rather than just the handle turning of alert monitoring or whatever it might be they're doing, get them to get into the fight. I, I really like the idea of, you know, if you think of computer games, you know, rage quitting is a thing. The game designers will create computer games to make it really hard to get through the levels so that the right. players throw their toys out the pram, throw their keyboards out the window or whatever it might be. What are we doing like that? How can we empower our cyber soft operators to be the end of level bad guys in our networks? Who, are, you know, who is old Wario, if you think of the Mario Brothers? Who is old Wario in our networks? Who is gonna make our attackers fear and consider how they get past this bad guy? But we don't instill that culture in our, in our teams. We worry about burnout, we absolutely do, but actually, we gave them something to be passionate about That'd and driving hard. It would be much more fun, <laughs> much more exciting. Yeah. You'd have a much better engagement and I bet you'd have a much more secure network and you'd have much more innovative solutions to your network defense problems as well. Right. And I think you'd have a greater retention policy as well because you wouldn't have the people cycling through six months here, 12 months there, get on to the next job. And the key determinant is I'm working from home in the same organization, whether it's organization A, B and C, I occasionally pop into work, 
the only difference is my pay packet. Actually, this organization wants me to belong, wants me to train up as a Jedi, whatever it might be. You could see how that would make a really compelling employment and retention case. Yeah. And I can see where if, if you're actually gaming the level of your posture, yeah. you really know your environment at that point. Absolutely. It's not just, okay, I have an alert, let me see what it is, where it's from, where it might be headed. It's a very siloed view, right? Just one thread of the bigger picture. But if you can game the whole posture. And just imagine how your conversations would change yeah. with your tech providers and your vendors at that point. Because you're not just looking at an option and abstractly comparing it against the MITRE checklist or you know the latest five-star ranking. You're looking at what that tool set can do for you and how you can use it in that fight. And that actually makes it a much better conversation. You'll see product development teams working on designing the yeah. latest kit. You'll have teams looking at how we integrate it better. And I think overall, it will just really enhance the defensive mindset, the defensive posture, and overall the, the defensive state of your network. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really exciting yeah. for cybersecurity. That is cool. That is cool. Well, I'm, a, I'm excited to, to chat with you, Bob. I mean, Robert, I should say. And uh, yeah, I, maybe, I don't know. If, I could talk to you for hours. I was thinking sure. it would be great to talk to you after your session as yep, well. Yeah, happy to. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, so if, maybe if we find time more this week, uh, that'd be awesome. great. Or anytime after, you're, you're very welcome on. I, I think I think there's a lot of a lot of points in here we can we can unpack further. I think we could definitely have a few longer yeah. conversations without that. So, but in the meantime, enjoy your session. Looking at the legal thing, bring your. Uh, I'm excited to, to, to hear you bring your, your, okay, your cool. unique viewpoint to the conversation. I think everybody's going to be on the same page. You're going to mix it up a bit. I think yourselves. it's going to be an interesting <laughs> challenge. I think so. We should have fun, no doubt. Yeah. We've got a good panel, so yeah. be exciting to be on the keynote stage yeah. at Infosec and uh, hopefully uh, warm up the audience and uh, get them excited and get them asking questions as well. That's nice one. Well, thanks a million for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks very much. Bye.